out of the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this afternoon is from the book of Genesis. We'll read um, several short passages. First, uh, Genesis chapter 1, we'll read verses 26 through 31. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. You can... Uh, Move down on your page or turn over to Genesis 3, where we'll read verses 1 through 7. Genesis uh, chapter 3, where man who is created in God's image rebels against the creator, and that image and likeness of God will therefore be corrupted. Um, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And finally, you can turn over to Genesis 5, where we'll read just verses 1 through 3, where now Adam's likeness is uh, passed on to his children. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. All that we read in connection with Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's on page 873. 
in the back of your hymnals. Um, remember from last week, Lord's Day 2, uh, tells us that the law of God reveals our sin, uh, that we are inclined by nature to hate both God and neighbor. We see that in question 5. And so now the very next question after that, uh, Lord's Day 3, is, is addressing the question of whether God created us that way. And so often that the way that the catechism is, is um, designed, it's, it's asking the next logical question that, that we ourselves would be asking as, as we hear the previous one. And so uh, having told us that we are inclined by nature to hate both God and neighbor, now uh, Lord's Day 3 is asking, is that the way it always was? So we'll read these three questions um, together responsively. I'll read the question and then we'll read the answer together Question six, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Beloved, this Lord's Day is in many ways summarizing the story of creation, fall, and, and redemption. And so it may be helpful to think of it in, in terms of a story. Uh, boys and girls, imagine you're, uh, you're living in a, a desolate wilderness that's, that's overrun by bandits. There's crime and uh, bloodshed all around you. The most innocent members of society are being killed. The weak are being preyed upon. It, it seems that all those around you, the thoughts and intentions of their heart are only evil all the time. So imagine you're a young child growing up in a world like this, but you've got a wise old mentor named Mr. Heidelberg who's, who's seeking to help you make sense of life. And as you observe together, it seems that everyone in this wilderness is inclined by nature to hate both God and man. You ask him, is this the way that it always was? You want to know if there was ever a time where things were not like this, where, where things were good, where people were good. And so your wise old mentor pulls you aside and, and with a little gleam in his eye, he tells you of a time when the thoughts and intentions of the heart were not evil. And this wilderness in which you live actually was a garden that a kind and loving creator had planted for his creatures who were made after his likeness to know, love, and live with him in eternal happiness. He had placed a man and a woman in this garden specially created by him after his likeness in true righteousness and holiness to have dominion over his creation to his praise and glory. 
But sadly, they rebelled against him. And their good nature became corrupt so that not only they, but those who were born after them would inherit their corrupt nature. And so he explains to you, that's why you live in this wilderness of sin. That's why people are the way that they are. And yet even as he tells you of the way that things once were and the way that things now are, he gets another little twinkle in his eye and he tells you of a promise made by that kind creator of a day when the wilderness will again be a garden and the thoughts and intentions of man's heart will no longer be evil, but good. They'll again reflect the righteousness and holiness of their maker. And so Mr. Heidelberg is is helping you to see the way that things once were. He's helping you to make sense of the way that things now are. He's helping you to have hope in the way that things one day will be. He's helping to make sense of the world around you. That's what Lord's Day 3 is doing, is it summarizes for us the story of creation, fall, and redemption around the theme of God's image. Created, corrupted, and then cured, and, and eventually consummated. So we see this afternoon. So look with me first at the creation of man and God's image. We see this in Genesis 1, where God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This is the first hint in the Bible, or one of the first hints in the Bible, at a, a doctrine of the Trinity, where there is a diversity within unity. There is plurality, more than one, and yet singularity. There is one God. And this one God, who is, who is yet three in one, creates man after his likeness. It creates him to be distinct from the birds of the air and from the cattle and from every creeping thing, but the crown of creation. And you see that in how God, if you were reading all throughout Genesis 1, has so, so far called each, each thing, each day, good. But after creating man, in verse 31, he says, it is very good. And Psalm 8, which we sang just a little while ago, reflects on this dignity of the human race when it says that this God who has set his glory above the heavens, this God who reveals his greatness and his glory in in the galaxies that, that Bildad helped us consider this morning in Job 25, this God who is so glorious yet is mindful of man. That's, that's where Bildad went, went wrong. But Psalm 8 gets it right as it's reflecting on Genesis 1. It says the glory of all of this is that this great and awesome God is mindful of man. Who Psalm 8 tells us he has crowned with glory and with honor and has made him to have dominion over the works of God's hands. He has put all things under his feet. So Psalm 8, as an inspired commentary on Genesis 1, is reflecting on how part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we would have dominion. That's why just after Genesis 1.26, where it says, let us make man in our image, it then says, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over all things. Part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to exercise lordship as royal sons. That's what Adam was created to be. 
And this is reflected in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I think complements Lord's Day 3, when it says that God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Part of what it means to be made in God's image is to exercise dominion. It is to have something of God's creativity and, and authority vested in us. That ability to exercise dominion as, as rational, moral, relational beings continues even after the fall. That's why Genesis 9 and, and James 3 and 1 Corinthians 11 all affirm that the image of God is still retained after the fall. We are still able to reflect something of God's creativity and authority and relationality in the way that we together exercise dominion over his good creation. Theologians speak of, of two aspects of the image of God. There is the image of God in, in the broad sense, that idea of dominion and, and authority, even being moral creatures who have a soul and are able to know God. That's not lost even after the fall. Then we also speak of, of the image of God in a narrow sense. And that's what Lord's Day 3 gets out, and it speaks of true righteousness and holiness. We'll talk in a little bit about the fall of man. But it's this aspect of God's image in us that is corrupted by sin, that is corrupted by the fall, this idea of true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians um, chapter 4, Colossians 3, you see them footnoted there in, in um, question 6. Those two passages will speak of the need for us to put off the old man and put on the new, and it says, being renewed in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness according to the image of him who created us. And so those two passages in Paul are suggesting that there is, is something in the image of God in us that is tainted and corrupted because of the fall. And that which is tainted is our ability to reflect the very character of God in true righteousness and holiness so that we might truly know him, love him, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. That was the end for which we were created, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But sin has affected our ability to do that and therefore estranged us from our creator. So we'll talk about that in, in just a moment as we think about the image of God corrupted. But before we do, I think it's good that we, we think about the significance of the fact that we are created in God's image. That question six, God created man good and in his own image, and though that image is corrupted, it is still retained even after the fall. That means that the way that we speak about others needs to be informed by the fact that those are image bearers of the very glory of God. That's, that's where James chapter 3 takes this. It says you praise God with the same lips that you then curse and mock his image bearers. And it's, it's making the point that that is a, a contradiction. You are glorifying God and yet cursing God's image. James tells that makes no sense. For in speaking flippantly and derisively about God's image bears, you are doing so about him. This also means um, that, that because all people continue to bear God's image, there is no place for, for any kind of racism where one ethnicity thinks that they are superior to another. 
One Reformed theologian writes, the, the doctrine of the image of God has far-reaching consequences for the rejection of every form of discrimination on the basis of race, skin color, or social intellectual status. Every human being is God's image. He says this is true of both man and woman. Notice in Genesis 1, it's male and female collectively who bear God's image. So a woman is not God's image as, as gender-neutral creature, neither is man, but, but gender differentiation is part of the image of God in the sense that both man in his masculinity and woman in her femininity are God's image. It's from uh, Van, Van Genderen and Velma to, to Dutch theologians and their concise reform dogmatics. Bavink says something very similar. He says, uh, not in the man alone nor in the woman alone, but in both together and in each in a special way, the image of God is expressed. Something of God's strength revealed in man, something of his tenderness in woman. And part of what that means is that there is no place for, for abusing or despising that image in the other. That's why 1 Peter 3 speaks of, of the woman as, as co-heir, emphasizing her dignity as it tells husbands to live with them in an understanding way. See, this doctrine of the image of God leaves no place for uh, domestic violence. It leaves no place for the misuse of one's authority. It leaves no place for racism or discrimination or exploiting those who are weaker yet made in God's image. Another interesting application is that if man as male and female together reflect God's image, then that means that marriage is, is a reflection of the image of God in a, in a unique way. And so any marriage that is not male and female in a differentiated union is a distortion of the image of God. So you see how important it is to understand this doctrine. It has implications um, for, for marriage. It has implications for, for um, race relations and, and uh, gender. It has implications for abortion. That, that if human beings are created in God's image and that image is given at conception, and we still retain that image even after the fall, and that means when a child in the womb is intentionally killed, that is an assault on God whose image that child bears. Love, this is why these things matter. This is not just an abstract doctrine for us to consider, but, but the glory of God is at stake in these issues, which is why it matters that we make the biblical point that man is created in and still retains, though affected by sin, the image of God. And next, though, we'll consider that image corrupted by the fall. So we read of in Genesis 3, and we uh, sang of in our, our song of preparation that Adam, as our federal head, sinned against God and so plunged the whole human race into sin and into death. Adam is the, the representative of the whole human race, and so as our representative, as our, our team captain, our leader, he sins and plunges the whole human race into sin and death. That's what Romans 5 speaks of when it, it says, by one man, sin entered into the world, and judgment came to all men. Adam was in covenant with God. 
Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 12, explains this, saying, When God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. It goes on to explain that Adam sinned against God. And because the covenant was, was made with um, Adam, not only for himself, question 16, but also for his posterity, all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. That, that's what Romans 5 verses 12 to 21 describes for us. That Adam is our federal head in covenant with God and when he sins, we sin in him and with him and we fall with him and are liable to God's judgment. That's what we sang when we said, all mankind fell in Adam's fall when common sin infects them all from sire to son, the bane descends and over all the curse impends. It says, through all man's power, corruption creeps, and him in dreadful bondage keeps, and guilt he draws his infant breath and reaps its fruits of woe and death. From hearts depraved to evil prone flow thoughts and deeds of sin alone. God's image lost the darkened soul, nor seeks nor finds its heavenly goal. So this is speaking not only of the imputation of Adam's guilt, but also of our inheriting his moral corruption, which is actually what we saw in Genesis chapter 5, where it, it sort of restates the, the doctrine of the image of God in Genesis 5.1. But then in that genealogy that traces um, Adam's descendants, it says that he begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. It's interesting to actually... Um, reverses the order of, of image and, and likeness. Some theologians make a bit of a point about that, that maybe there's, there's something of, of the distortion that we see there. And Calvin says of this verse, in, in saying that Adam begot a son after his image, it, it refers in part to uh, the, the first origin of our nature, that we continue to bear God's image. That's part of what Genesis 5.1 is restating. Then he goes on to say, at the same time, that image is corrupted and polluted, and this is to be noticed in this verse, which having been contracted by Adam through the fall, our corruption and pollution flows down to all his posterity. Calvin says, if Adam had remained upright, he would have transmitted to all his children what he had received, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But now we read that Seth, as well as the rest, are defiled because Adam, who had fallen from his original state, could beget none as but such as were like himself. So this sad instance in Genesis 5 furnishes us with ample occasion to deplore our wretchedness. And Calvin is, is saying this verse teaches us about our inherited corruption and moral pollution. It teaches us that though we do still retain God's image, as Genesis 5.1 affirms, since Adam's nature became corrupt, he therefore brought forth corrupt children. Candace of Dort speak of this in the third head of doctrine. It says, Adam's original gift of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness was replaced with futility of mind, with hardness of heart, and with impurity in all his emotions. 
And that that corruption then spread to all Adam's descendants. And so you and I are therefore neither willing nor able to return to God or reform our distorted nature in ourselves. It is in that sense that our our song of preparation said God's image is in some sense lost. It's, It's corrupted. It's tainted. It's marred. We no longer bear the image of God in that narrow sense of truly knowing God, our creator, in righteousness and holiness and loving him with all our heart and and living with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. That was the end for which we were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yet man is no longer able to do that naturally, but is so corrupt We're no longer able to do any spiritual good, as it says in Genesis 6, 5, are inclined toward all evil. So thinking back to that opening illustration, though though man was created to, to know this creator and live with him in that perfect garden, once he rebelled... He did so as a representative of of the whole human race, which he then placed at enmity with the Creator, and everyone who was born after him inherited his corrupt nature. Like Seth in Genesis 5. So that now man finds himself not in a garden of delight where people perfectly reflect the Creator's image, but in a desolate wilderness where that image is distorted and abused and despised where it is not what it once was, nor is it what it one day will be, and that image is cured and consummated. But before we get to that, a word of application about the image of God being corrupted. What does this mean for how we live our lives as God's creatures on earth? How does does this understanding of, of our corrupt nature affect the way that we live? See, just a few things about this. It gives us what we might call a a low anthropology, where we're not shocked and surprised every time another person sins against us, but are are able in in some sense to expect it and and not become so bitter and and so uh, consumed with it every time someone sins against us or every time someone disagrees with us on a a political matter or maybe on a, a peripheral theological matter but are able to recognize that we still suffer from a distortion in judgment in mind. That's why we may disagree. And we are not as holy and righteous as we once were or as we one day will be, and so we're going to be sinned against. We shouldn't be surprised by that, even in the church. We need to have a realistic view of human nature. We need to not get so upset so frustrated every time someone sins against us. As one pastor said, in an inflated estimation of human nature, in other words, a failure to recognize our corruption, capsizes love for your neighbor. If you assume that people are basically good, then they will exasperate you when they sin or when they make unwise choices, and you will likely become judgmental and angry. But a recognition of the fallen nature of sinful man forges sympathy and compassion. It teaches us to be patient. It teaches us to have a realistic expectation. It it teaches us to bear with one another. And as you think not, not just about 
the church and the family of God, but, but thinking outwardly, it, it teaches us to have compassion on the world around us because they are in Adam and not in Christ. You see, the importance of, of understanding our fallen nature, even of understanding our own sin, that we ought not to be so crippled and, and so crushed and overwhelmed when, when we fall again, but we recognize that we have not yet arrived. We need to understand the fall of man and our corrupt nature if we would understand ourselves and if we would understand the world in which we live. But of course, the good news is that when we are born again by the Spirit of God, we begin to make small steps of obedience. And one day we'll be freed from sin completely. As we see in in question eight, even a little hint of where mankind is headed as that image that was created in the garden and and corrupted in the fall will be cured and consummated through Christ, who is the image of God. It's what Colossians 1.15 calls him. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. It's what Hebrews 1.3 says, that he is the the exact imprint of of the Father's glory, the, the radiance of his glory, exact imprint of his nature who comes to restore God's image in us so that we might be recreated and renewed, Ephesians 4, in righteousness and holiness after him. Christ is the perfect, unblemished image of God, not born according to ordinary generation, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, the the fulfillment of that Genesis 3 promise, born of a woman, and is so that we might be reborn in him and renewed after his image. Christ comes as the perfect image of God to restore our fallen nature. Christ comes born according to the flesh, it says in Romans 1, uh, 3 and 4, but declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. That is, raised not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, according to an entirely new humanity into which we are incorporated when he pours out his Spirit and we are joined to him by faith. So that now we are able to do spiritual good. And we are able to serve God. And one day will no longer be affected by sin, but will bear his image completely as God's image in us is consummated, Philippians 3.21, when our lowly bodies will be transformed and conformed according to the likeness of his glorious body. As we'll sing in a bit, Christ, the second Adam came to bear our sin and woe and shame to be our life, our light, our way, our only hope, our only stay, as by one man all mankind fell and born in sin was doomed to hell. So by one man who took our place, we all received the gift of grace. That gift is the image that was lost or, or distorted being renewed by Christ's Spirit. Another hymn that I think well captures this. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. There's a a lost verse we don't have in our hymnals. Some hymnals have it where uh, Charles Wesley says, Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. O to all thyself impart. Formed in each believing heart. We are born again by the Spirit of Christ. The likeness of Adam is progressively replaced with likeness to Christ. 
That's the point of Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10 or, or 2 Corinthians 3, which we heard in our call to worship, that as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. As we behold God's perfect image in his son, Jesus Christ, Paul is saying we are transformed into that same image by beholding him. So that slowly, little by little, Lord's day by Lord's day, as we behold him, we are made like him. We are transformed into his likeness. And so how do we behold him? We behold him in his words. We behold him in the preaching of it, both morning and afternoon. We behold him at the Lord's table and at the baptismal font. We behold him in the songs of Zion, which we sing. And, and Paul is making the point in 2 Corinthians 3 that as we behold Christ, who is the image of God, we are transformed by his spirit into his same likeness and glory. From one degree of glory to the next until God's work in us is complete and we will behold him face to face. In 1 John 3, when we behold him, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's how the story ends. As we, we consider the, the, the Bible's story of, of creation, fall, redemption, consummation around this theme of the image of God, that's where the story ends. God's image completely restored in us where we shall behold him for we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. That's how the story ends. Though it may sometimes feel like we live in a desolate wilderness where the image of God is all but lost, as the world around us does not desire to know God and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory and sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we don't desire to either. Nevertheless, the good news of God's word and, and the good news of, of Mr. Heidelberg is, is seeking to convey to us this afternoon is that that is not the way that things have always been and it is not the way that things one day will be. But God has promised not only to, to remake us according to the likeness of the first Adam, but to elevate us according to the image of the second. He has promised not only to restore what was lost in Adam, but to elevate us to the glorious image of the second Adam, where we will be like him. We will truly know God as he is. We will love him with all our heart, and we will live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's, that's how the story ends. And God calls us then in the midst of this wilderness of sin in which we live to cast our gaze upward to the promise of a new creation. He calls us to take this promise that we will one day be like him and our lowly body to be transformed into the image of his glory to take that promise and look upward awaiting that day. And he calls us until we get there to give ourselves to the means that he uses of word and sacrament to transform us into that image that we will one day bear. And then also to understand that we are not there yet and so to bear with one another as we still bear the likeness of the first Adam. 
That's what this theology of the image of God and the corruption of sin teaches us, to on the one hand have a very high anthropology respecting the the image of God and our fellow man, but at the same time a relatively low anthropology understanding our corrupt nature and bearing with those who continue to bear some likeness to the first Adam. Not being surprised by sin in the world and not being surprised even by sin in the church. And yet all the while, even in the midst of that, giving ourselves to the means of grace, giving ourselves to the means that God has promised to use so that we might make small steps of obedience as we behold Christ, the image of the invisible God, and are transformed by his spirit into his same likeness from one degree of glory to the next. Until he comes, even so come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider the doctrine of sin, we are humbled. As we look at ourselves in the mirror and see how much we fail to meet the standard of truly knowing you and loving you with all our heart and living with you in eternal happiness for your praise and glory. Lord, we fail in doing this. But are like our father Adam, loving ourselves and hating both God and neighbor. But Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us in that state, but you sent your son, the exact image of your likeness, the perfect image of God to live out humanity's intended purpose, to then die for our sin, and then to rise unto heaven, to pour out your spirit so that we could be transformed into his same image by the word of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would work in us by that word to supplant the image of the first Adam with the image of the second, that you would help us to love our neighbor and and respect your image in them, and also even to bear with them in their likeness to the old man. Lord, we pray that you would help us in all of this for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name.